one word that's very commonly used in philosophy is the word substance. And in everyday language, it just means like stuff. But in philosophy, it means like, you know, the substrate upon which all the properties change, right? So like, what is the substance of a stone that stays the same even when it changes color or breaks or something like that? What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a former philosophy lecturer turned data scientist. His interest in philosophy began in childhood when his dad reprimanded his laziness by quoting Parmenides and saying, nothing comes from nothing. Since then, he's been trying his best to figure out what cryptic phrases like that could possibly mean. That quest for understanding led him to quickly fall in love with the discipline of philosophy and its ability to deepen our understanding and appreciation of the world. Nowadays, he uses data to do the same, but with more practical applications. Leveraging his background as a researcher and educator and combining that with a strong set of technical skills in analyzing data and producing compelling insights and visualizations. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, the creator of the Philosophy Data Project, a website that uses a set of dashboards to enable users to apply data-driven tools to the history of philosophy, Dr. Kurush Alizadeh. Kurush, man, so excited to have you here. I know I probably butchered the first name. Tell it to me one more time, man. It's all good. Kurush. <laughs> Kurush, right on, man. Hey, well, I'm super, super excited to have you here, man. Um, I really enjoyed digging through your website. I thought it was just such a really interesting collision of, of disciplines, philosophy and data and, and what you set up. I'm really excited to learn more about that. Plus, you know, I just I, love philosophy. So I always love talking to philosophers. So this, this should be a cool conversation. Uh, but before we get into all that stuff, let's talk a little bit about you. Where did you grow up and what was it like there? I was born in England, but we moved a lot when I was a kid. So probably I really grew up in Colorado. I was there since third grade. So, I mean, I don't know. Colorado is nice. It's got snow and it's got sunshine. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> Clearly so, not a super formative experience. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hey, man, Colorado is awesome, man. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. I've been there a couple of times. I, I was in Denver, I think back in October of 2019, before all this pandemic shit went down. And one of my buddies lived in this neighborhood called the Rhino. And it was okay. cool, man. A lot of cool beer, uh, breweries and stuff out there. I'm a yeah, kind yeah. of, of breweries. But when you're in high school, like, what were you up to? Like, what did you think your future was going to look like? Honestly, I read a lot of like crazy books. I read like House of Leaves and like 
this author called Borges, which is just like all these like whack ass short stories. You might, you might've read him. And I was just like, you know what? I like crazy stories like this. So maybe I'll like write a book. And I was like, oh, I'll probably just like be 50 and like answer emails from people who read my books or whatever and read more books. And that would be pretty cool. And th- that was like my dream back then. <laughs> so so um, how, how different is life now than, than what you're imagining? Uh, pretty different. Uh, well, obviously I didn't, uh, and well, I did write a book, but it wasn't really like that. And I, you know, I fell in love and I have a family and all this. So it's a little different than the solitary author, whatever visions of a high schooler. And I ended up doing tech instead of just doing a philosophy. So. Yes. So you studied, you studied all the way up through, you know, to your PhD in, in philosophy, but then made the transition to data science. Talk to us about how that happened. Uh, well, I really liked philosophy. I mean, I was reading those crazy books as a high schooler. And uh, then I was like, I want to write a book. And I realized the things I liked about those books were the ideas and not really the plots. And I was like, I could just study ideas. That's what philosophy is. And so I got really into it. And I was like, just really enjoying it. But at the end of the day, what philosophy does is it like helps you understand stuff. But, you know, understanding isn't really worth a lot unless you can make it do stuff. You know, and what can philosophy help you do? Not really a lot, you know, whereas the data science seemed like a way to both get that kind of like interesting insights about the world vibe, but also get practical stuff you could apply. You know, you could figure out like exactly the numbers on what's going on and how you could change this thing to affect that thing. Right. Whereas philosophy was like really cool and abstract and that's part of its charm. But at the end of the day, you can't. Like, you don't know what to do to get something to happen. I mean, but back in those those days, the classical days, right? Like, a lot of the, the philosophers were also, like, mathematicians and scientists yeah. and, and things like that. Like, so, definitely very useful stuff. Like, so, h- how does that how does that fit into, like, you know, in the modern day? Like, are philosophers still like that? Like, do we still have philosophers who study, quote-unquote, philosophy and ideas, but they're also, like, you know, like you doing data type of stuff? Yeah, I think there are those people. They're not as recognized as philosophers, maybe. So just as humanity's gone on, we've become more and more specialized, right? And philosophy is part of that. And it's kind of antithetical to the nature of philosophy to become specialized because it's such a holistic discipline. Like the point of it is to try to understand everything in one big system. I mean, that's like what I think the point of it is, I guess. But that's one way of understanding what's going on. And to do that, you need to like have a lot of information about a lot of different things. But in today's society, everything gets specialized. So philosophy became its own discipline, its own profession. And those people in the academies are doing philosophy in their own way. But I mean, if you want my real opinion, everyone's doing philosophy. They're just maybe not aware that they're doing it. So you're probably doing it every day. And people who are doing things like responsible tech, that's definitely an intersection of philosophy and technology. People who are just thinking about environmentalism there's a kind of philosophy behind environmentalism and how we should approach it you know so it's kind of just everywhere i feel like i'm not totally answering your question but yeah no, no. yeah <laughs> no, but that's that's an important point like philosophy definitely definitely is everywhere so i was i'm a huge fan of these shows on amazon prime you can order a channel add-on called the great courses i'm not sure oh, yeah yeah i've heard of those dude the great courses are amazing and they've got a whole bunch of philosophy lectures and they'll have stuff like you know the big questions of philosophy 
the philosophy of physics and the philosophy of science and like mm. all these different types of courses, just phenomenal, amazing. What would you say the philosophy of data science is if we had to kind of pin that? Would there be a philosophy to data science or of data science? Yeah. So usually when you see those things that are like the philosophy of X, they're trying to like, first off, they figure out questions that are sort of fundamental to the science, but probably not explored by the science itself. So data scientists, you know, they're just like building models and like chugging the numbers and whatever, making predictions. But if you did the philosophy of that, you'd be wondering, you know, how do predictions even work? Like, can we trust predictions? And if so, why? Can numbers really model everything or are there things that numbers just can't model, right? Is doing data science good? Like, is it, obviously it gets some kind of result, but are those results we want? Are they results that are good for the human nature? You're morally good or whatever, that kind of thing. Or, and another just like super basic question, like what is data? right? Is data numbers? Does it have to be numerical? I mean, there's text data, but when you do NLP, you almost always turn it into numbers, right? So is there something about numberness that is essential to data? Is data just like, are my eyes taking in data every time they open? Does that count? Right? Like what exactly counts as data for data science might be different than what counts as data in a casual sense. Let's break that down a little bit. What is data? Right, if we think about that, like what is data? How is it different from like information? Right? Are data and information the same thing? I don't know. I mean, maybe as the words are used in everyday language, they're probably the same. In the context of data science, it seems like data is a lot about relationships between things. And it's a lot about like a quantity, not just like a single fact, right? Mm -hmm. Like in data science, you can't do anything. If I told you it's 25 degrees outside, you wouldn't be like, cool, let me model that. <laughs> like, yeah. You can't model anything, right? You need a lot of it to make a trend and, and turn something into something useful, you know? So uh, data might be like a body of information. Maybe that'd be a way to say it. Like if it's 25 degrees Celsius, I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd get my shorts on, put on a <laughs> I'd start. I'd start modeling outside. Yeah. <laughs> get your uh, partner to get you some, a photograph, man. You'd be a yes. good mom. So, I mean, th there's a lot of interesting, interesting things to to kind of dig into there. But, but first, let, let's let's talk about the philosophy data project, right? Okay. So, w what is this all about? Well, I just thought I loved philosophy, and I'm kind of a sucker for it. And I was like, how can I use data science to work on philosophy stuff? And I just thought, well, I liked working with texts. Let's get some books and run some numbers on them, right? And that's what I did in the end. The site itself has like four different features I kind of developed and made available to people, like these four different dashboards. I'm working on another one and there's all these like ideas in my head and we'll see which ones come to fruition and when. Uh, and I try to add texts every week. But the goal of it was just to use data science tools to enable the exploration of philosophy. Because reading a book of philosophy takes a long time. Getting the most common words and like core concepts like that, you can do it at a drop of a hat, you know. And did you kind of take on this project as a way to teach yourself data science? Like, how, how did that happen? Because you, you didn't go to, to school to study like math or coding or software engineering or anything like that. But you've got this amazing website up. You've got this amazing app and you're doing all this data science stuff. Did you have to teach yourself all of that from the ground up? What was that process like? Well, I went to a Flatiron Data Science Bootcamp. Okay. And this was my capstone project. Uh, the capstone was just the classifier. 
And so then I was like, well, I already have this data. I've cleaned the texts. I have like this, you know, 300,000 line CSV. I may as well like do more with it. So then I did. <laughs> so so the, the idea was just kind of colliding to like, you know, two things that you're really interested in and making something new and all, right. I think that's super, super creative there. Like, but why analyze philosophy and like of all the different types of texts? Why philosophy? Was it just because that was the thing that you were most interested in? Was there a particular question you're trying to answer or truth you're trying to get to? Probably for two reasons. So first off, obviously, I was just like into it. <laughs> but the other reason is kind of related to like, what is a philosophy, which is like super uh, contestable. But here's my take. Basically, everyone has these kind of core beliefs. You know, if I ask you, is capital punishment right? Right? Should people be killed for crimes? Is evil in the world? Does God exist? What happens after we die? Is the world totally physical or are there spirits and souls? Those kinds of questions, you probably don't spend all day thinking about it, but you probably have answers to them. And those answers aren't like just fun facts that you think about. They're probably deep parts of how you believe the world works. And they probably have strong influence on your politics, your relationships, everything you do. And so what a philosophy is, is the answers to those core questions. So when someone says, what's your personal philosophy? They're kind of asking you, when it comes down to it, well, how would you answer those basic questions? That's why I liked philosophy as a discipline, because when you're doing philosophy and studying it, you're trying to get all your answers to like fit together and make sense and be understood in a detailed way. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, and, and, yeah. and sometimes when you're doing that, you get led to crazy places. You, you like you think, well, I think, you know, everything is physical. Well, that means nothing happens after I die. And it means that I don't have a soul and like all this crazy stuff starts to break out of it, you know. But yeah. anyway, let's leave that aside. If that's what a philosophy is, then if we can understand people's philosophies, then we can really understand them and help them understand themselves. Right. So the overall goal was to build this classifier so that. I could take the texts of philosophy, break down what are their like most relevant features and use them to classify texts from everyday people. So you could read all your Facebook posts or your Twitter tweets and it'll say, well, you tend to tweet like a Platonist. So maybe you are a Platonist and then you could do some more research and figure out what is a Platonist? Do I believe these things? What would other people say about these things if I believe them? You know what I mean? And I mean, obviously you could use it for like marketing or whatever other purposes, but yeah. So why would we want to analyze philosophy? Because analyzing philosophy is like analyzing, you know, the world and your own worldview at the same time, you know? And so you mentioned some, some of the, you had, was it say 300,000 lines of text that went into this? What was the, what was the, the data that, that went into this project with the raw data? Yeah. So at this point, probably more than that, but it's all books. So there's Project Gutenberg. I'm sure people have heard of that. That's got a lot of good books on there. Some of them are like a little outdated, but whatever. And then I also just had PDFs of a lot of great texts in the history of philosophy. And I used those. Uh, I had to clean a lot of stuff, but we got there in the end. Yeah. And I think the audience would really love to hear about kind of like the, the process that you went about doing this. So you go to Pro Project Gutenberg, you just download a bunch of different text files that are all just philosophical texts. Mm -hmm. And then we just put them all into, you know, whatever database, or maybe you got a NoSQL database. I don't know. How, how are you doing this? Like, what's the, what's the steps to go from text into, you know, building the model? Kind of walk us through that. Yeah, sure. So 
a text is like a very long string, right? So that is really long string. You can't really do a lot with a very long string. So you have to break it down, right? But in order to break it down, I used, shoot, I forgot the library. Oh, well, I'm, I'm sure it's all on <laughs> GitHub. You can look at the library. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I broke it down into, into sentences. So each line of the CSV is a sentence and associated with it is a tokenized sentence. So you can skip the words out and like the length of it and that kind of thing, you know, like basic stats. How did I do all that? Okay, so I had like the, the book itself. Gutenberg is pretty good because they don't have like page numbers. It's all just one big text file. You just have to like clip the contents uh, table and clip the copyright junk at the end. And then you got the book, you know, that's pretty much fine. But PDFs have like all kinds of nonsense in them, you know, and I'm, I'm sure anyone who's worked with PDFs can relate. Like you get a PDF. I turned them all into text files because Python can't really read PDFs that well. Even like PyPDF reader only reads them when they are text PDFs, when a lot of PDFs are image PDFs of books, you know? Yeah. So I had to like clean all that. I had like one big function that would just like clean out a lot of common nonsense. And then that did pretty decent. But in addition to that, I had a lot of weird, you know, just this word would come out funny in this text. So I had to make like a dictionary, probably like 300, 400 lines long of like, when you see this, fix it to that, you know? Yeah. And that was all like kind of ad hoc. As I would see weird stuff come up, I would fix it and go back and like iterate. So yeah, and in the end, I had just a giant CSV, but then I uploaded it to a SQL server for my uh, the Heroku apps that run the site. And like when you had all that text and stuff, like now it's ready to to do some analysis. What type of like exploratory data analysis did you did you do to to help well, you think about how to model it? I did like the word frequency tables and that kind of thing, n-gram frequencies. It's kind of hard to do exploratory data analysis on text without just like starting to model. In my experience, I mean, maybe I'm probably wrong. I'm not that in, in, uh, not that experienced. So maybe someone has better strategies than me. But I just kind of wanted to like get started. So I just made some word frequency charts and stuff. And you would see weird stuff, right? You'd be like, "Why does this guy use this word? He's not supposed to use that word." And then you'd look back and you'd be like, well, that's the title of one of his chapters. And in the PDF, it's at the top of every page. So it looks like a sentence. So it's there a thousand times when it shouldn't be. Does that kind of make sense? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a, then I had to like go back and clean it, you know? So a lot of the EDA ended up being more like iterative cleaning. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about some of the, the interesting findings that you kind of had as you're doing this, like from you know, your perspective as a philosopher, as somebody who studied all these texts, I mean, I don't know if you studied all those texts, it's a lot of books. Did, did you actually read, have you read all these books before? No, <laughs> I, don't even, I don't think I've even read like all of Aristotle. So like, yeah, I've, I've read some of it. <laughs> was there, was there like surprising stuff that you're like, oh my God, like this person is being classified like this when they should be like that? Or, or were you something like, oh my God, like these two philosophers who, are opposed actually seem like they might actually have some similarities. Was there any interesting stuff like that? A little bit. Well, of course there was interesting stuff for me. Yeah. The classifier didn't, the classifier was like organized to help text categorize like Twitter and normal people's text. Mm -hmm. So it, it didn't really do anything for insights into philosophy. For me, the thing that was most useful for like how does philosophy work was the word vectors. Because, right, I, I don't know, your audience probably knows that a word vector is basically like, not to put like too vague a sense on it, but it's the computer trying to learn the meaning of the word, right? Mm -hmm. 
and it tells you, oh, this is all the words I think are similar to that word, right? It took a little bit of finagling, but in the end, I built word vector models for each of the schools of philosophy, and I was able to also build them for most of the authors when the author had a meaningful amount of text, you know? Like some of them, I just didn't have enough texts to make it say anything interesting. Mm -hmm. That was really interesting to me because, uh, and you can usually see this on the site, there's just like three columns on that dashboard, and you can pick the author or give it a word, and you could even compare different authors on, different, on the same word to see how they think about it. So, for example, one word that's very commonly used in philosophy is the word substance. And in everyday language, it just means like stuff. But in philosophy, it means like, you know, the substrate upon which all the properties change, right? So, like, what is the substance of a stone that stays the same even when it changes color or breaks or something like that? That's only one conception of substance. <laughs> but anyway, so I use, Aristotle came up with the idea. So you can see what he thinks about substance. Spinoza makes substance like a huge big deal in his arguments. So you can see what he says about substance, but there's a big difference. Aristotle will never talk about God. Spinoza talks about God constantly. So for Spinoza, God is substance and Aristotle, not so much. And you can kind of see that change just using the word and use analysis uh, feature. And then, you know, a hundred years or around the same time as Spinoza, there's the empiricists. And how do they use the word substance? For them, it's all about perception and your senses. And that just shows you kind of like the evolution of this term and how it's used. And I just thought that was like, to me, that was one of the interesting insights that the word vectors were able to give. You might have been able to guess that just from knowing the history of philosophy, but it was cool to have it validated by the data. And you could do it with uh, words that were not as commonly studied by philosophers. So one of my favorite example probably is like, I just gave love to the, the word use analysis feature. And, you know, Aristotle says love and you see what words he comes up with. And it's all about like harmony and character and who you are and how, and how your relationships are, right? You give love to Marx and Marx is never going to talk about that. He's going to talk about support and, and helping each other, you know? So for him, it's more about material aid. And you give love to the rationalists like Spinoza. They're not even going to talk about people. It's all about God and virtue. You know what I mean? And so philosophers of histories of uh, historians of philosophy don't study the history of love, really. But you can get it in a nutshell right there. And I thought that was really cool. That is pretty cool, man. So talk to us about the, so the website is just, philosophydata.com. How does it work? Like, so you, you get to the website, you go to the philosophydata.com slash classifier.html, and then you just enter in a, a bit of text and, and what, yeah. what kind of happens? What's it, what's it telling us? Cause you got two things. You got search for a Twitter user and then enter your own text. What's, what's that all about? Yeah. So I just thought this would be a fun feature. You could enter a Twitter user and it just like scrapes their last 20 tweets or so. Mm -hmm. And you can also enter your own text. So if you wanted to like, Say you are writing an article or an essay for your class that's about an author, right? You could put that author in there and be like, am I writing in their style, for example? Or you could say, say you really want to find, make this person like you, right? <laughs> then you should check them, look them up on Twitter, find their philosophy profile, and then uh, you'll be able to speak appropriately to them. <laughs> you know what I mean? So and, let's, uh, let's pull this up real quick. So... You guys listening on the podcast, we'll be trying to descript, be as descriptive as possible, but this will also be up on YouTube, so definitely check that out. So I want, I want to dabble around with this because I think this is super cool, man. Like, I really, really think what you do is Sometimes cool. it gives some weird results, but yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of Naval Ravikant. He's like my, my hero, right? So let's go and just look him up. 
here on Twitter. Are you familiar with Naval at all? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, he's he's freaking awesome. I absolutely love this guy. And you go to Naval, right? Mm-hmm. We got him here, and then we can enter the Twitter user. Do we need to put the at in front of the Twitter user, or do we just put the? I think you can just leave it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So we put Naval up, right? And what what it, what does it do when we go to the Twitter uh, user? You said it scrapes the first twenty. I think it's fifty. It wanted to get a good good amount of them. All right, and then it spits out, it's pretty cool, it spits out a prediction pro- probability. In this case, we got prediction probabilities for Naval looking at his last X number of texts. And mm-hmm. it's prediction probabilities for, we got Plato at 0.42, Continental at 0.24, Analytic at 0.16, Aristotle at 0.07. So what are all these these things? Yeah, so what it's doing is it's, uh, this is a Bayesian classifier. I built uh, stronger neural networks, but, they're way harder to upload. So this is a Bayesian classifier. It's just going through his text. Uh, it does some minor cleaning of the Twitter data. So that like H, the links and stuff are not noise. And then it says basically based on that, what's the chance that it belongs to these different schools. Mm-hmm. And then on the right-hand side, you can see the words that made it push in different directions. Nice. So for example, poetry, that's a big Plato thing. He loves poetry. He talks about it all the time. Uh, apparently Naval does too. There you go. Ah, cool. That's pretty cool. And let's talk about these different schools of philosophy just to kind of break it down for us. So Plato, mm-hmm. like, I mean, he's, he's kind of famous as, as a philosopher. He's fucking Plato. So people, <laughs> people might know him. What's, uh, what's continental and, and analytic and... and you know, yeah, uh, those are maybe, you know, schools that you would know if you were uh, big on philosophy or something. But continental philosophy is like European philosophy of the last hundred years, maybe mm-hmm. would be a way to describe it. Yeah. It's characterized by like, a lot of focus on language, a sense that like knowledge is fleeting. I mean, if you've heard of postmodernism, that's a lot of continental vibes. Mm-hmm. Analytic philosophy is like the counterpart to that in, in England and America. So that's like English and American philosophy of the last hundred years. They also care a lot about language, but where the continental people were like, language's meaning is very fluid and kind of dynamic and created by social forces, et cetera, and like never really pin downable. The analytic people were really just totally into pinning it down. So if you think about uh, developments in uh, logic, a lot of those can be attributed to analytic philosophers, even developments in math, like Cantor wouldn't be an analytic philosopher, but Frege after him, he's a mathematician. He was one of the earliest analytic philosophers. So what's kind of your school of philosophy that you kind of the subscribe to is that the right word to use or or how do we sure. say that i mean no one school is going to be like oh yeah the end all be all most of these schools are hundreds of years old and if you really went and said i, I believe everything this guy said you'd probably say some crazy stuff but if you wanted my opinion about what is like the most resonant to me it would probably be german idealism now that's what i did my dissertation on and that's kind of spoke to me uh, it's pretty esoteric discipline i can tell you about it if you want <laughs> yeah definitely man I'd, I'd love to hear about it because i mean i that the philosophy man so yeah. tell me about this yeah uh it's basically german philosophy and this is the dominant philosophical tradition in the western world at this time but it was in the later 1700s and early 1800s people have heard of the enlightenment this is like the end of the enlightenment the major figures are kant and hegel and then there's other guys in the middle uh, the the things that speak to me from it are that these people really want philosophy to understand like everything in some sense analytic and continental philosophers, more modern ones, they're content to just be like, well, I said some stuff about this and like, that was cool. And I, that was interesting. And I did something good, but Kant was like, we need to understand how it all fits together, buddy. 
you know, and Hegel was like that, but like to the next level. And they were a lot of interested in knowledge and how like you could know the world. Where they landed on it was you can't know the world outside of it being perceived. Now, that's the idealism part. It's obviously more nuanced than that. If there's like philosophy people listening to this, they're probably like, wow, he's butchering it. But that's like the bottom line. And Kant kind of said that. And then he said, oh, yeah, there's some other stuff out there, but we can never know what it's like. And that's totally cool because who cares about stuff you could never know? <laughs> like, you can't yeah. know it. So why, why worry? You, if as soon as it becomes knowable to you, then, then it is knowable, you know? So he said that, but then Hegel was like, no, there just isn't stuff out there aside from what's perceived. And by perceived, he didn't mean like you and me opening our eyes and staring. He meant more like, well, not to get like totally weird with it, but he basically thought that the world was knowing itself. And so it was not so much like physics and atoms bumping into each other and then like creating life. It was more like, logical structures dynamically working with one another and then creating the material world out of that dynamic dialectical pattern and then creating consciousness through a further development of that pattern and basically that whole thing is just like rationality creating the universe and then coming to know itself rationally if that makes sense yeah yeah super interesting man like i mean i just started getting reacquainted with my my love of philosophy you know just a couple of years ago mm. and it started with just, you know, me getting back into to just reading and stuff because I just hadn't for such a long time, right? And I started getting getting back in into philosophy and stuff with an, you know, mostly stoic philosophy. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I mean, it it's it's just I felt like it's just a way guidance for how to live my life, right? Because I feel like that's what philosophy means to me. It's just you know, a way to live your life. Here's some guidelines for living a, a good life, right? Take them if you want you know, and, and, and use them if you will. But I don't know, man. So, so I started, you know, reading Stoic philosophy and it really resonated with me and I really enjoyed it. But then I got this natural thing that just makes me go back to weird, like philosophy. And I, and I say weird, like, and I say weird in a sense that I feel like it's not useful philosophy. Like I'll just be thinking about the, like, you know, like the, the nature of the mind, like, what is this? Or what is reality? Like I spend a lot of yeah. time thinking about that. Like what, what is actually real? Oh, you'd like the German idealisms, bro, because they're all just about like basically what is reality? Is it created by the mind? Is it not created by the mind? How much of it's, you know, what's the structure? Yeah. Yeah. And that stuff's not useless, okay? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it's really, they're really important questions, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I, I find it deeply meaningful to think about it. Like, but then I also like the stuff about how I should live my life, right? Yeah. Like, you know, how to live a good life. Yeah. The nature of reality doesn't really matter unless it pays out somewhere on how to live your life. Yeah. Yeah, and right. I, and Kant and Hegel both have stories about how you should live your life, and they like build it out of their idea about what reality's like. And the Stoics have a story about what reality's like, but they just don't make that front and center. It's more about you know how to live your life. Yeah, and they have a great story about it. Honestly, I, they, um, the Stoicism was another one that really resonated with me, and I just actually added it to the database. So. Oh, nice! I'm looking forward to to checking that out. Yeah, I've got. Um, I'll, I'll just give you a, a glimpse of what I recently been into so you know i read some philosophy every morning and for some reason i don't know why i've just been really into aphorisms lately like yeah. really really into aphorisms, Love aphorisms. <laughs> yeah so i mean one of the best philosophers fucking bruce lee oh yeah <laughs> uh, have you read striking thoughts no i haven't but oh my it God, looks pretty dude. cool dude striking thoughts is amazing it's just a book of aphorisms right and i also got uh, some heraclitus the the fragments nice, nice. 
I've been, yeah, I've been really interested in Heraclitus recently. So I got that Heraclitus book and this other one, Quotes and Facts. But then this one I, I found really interesting. It's Expect the Unexpected. Yeah, and essentially, yeah, it's just a, a book about creative thinking. And this guy's just taking stuff from uh, Heraclitus, Roger Van Eck. He's written a couple of other books on creativity. Yeah, he whack on the side of the head is one of the books that he wrote and kick in the seat of the pants. And this one is just a creativity tool based on the ancient wisdom of, of Heraclitus. And what's uh, what is he what is he saying that one? That sounds pretty interesting. Well, I just started reading this one. I'm only about 20 or 30 pages in, but it's essentially just he's all like Roger Van Eck is all about creative thinking and problem solving. And he's yeah. essentially just he's looking through 30 of Heraclitus's like his fragments or aphorisms and using that as a jumping off point to think creatively. Uh, nice. and this one, this one I just got recently from Aaron Haspel is just, just aphorisms, everything. Aphorisms. Book of, yeah, book of aphorisms. I got this one because Nassim Taleb said, Aaron Haspel is good. Very good. <laughs> like, All right. Well, if Nassim Taleb said this guy's good, I got, I got a good recommendation. Out. Yeah. I was like, That's a good cosign. But yeah, man. So just a little, little bit of the philosophy that I've been interested in lately is just yeah. interesting, weird kind of, I don't know. Is it weird? Is, is it weird to, to want to, think about uh, my life and if i live a good life like what what is that what does what does a good life even mean like what does that mean i mean it was weird to think about that that's sad bro it should be normal right <laughs> so, yeah exactly right it should yeah. be normal right is, is it just me that thinks it's weird or or like is i don't know like i don't know yeah, i don't know i think people are really busy and it's also like it's very personal you know like i was saying before your philosophy is like your personal beliefs at a deep level and like if you go to someone and you're like dude let's talk about this you better hope that you all are close friends or, or something because you're liable to say some stuff or push some buttons, especially if you're like really, you know, going for it a little bit, you might really like hurt people, offend people. And the thing with philosophy, I know like this is a big stereotype. I got this all the time when I was like teaching, everyone was like, Oh yeah, you're just saying your opinion. It's all the same, right? Like you have yours. I have mine. That only works like so far. Like if you think that people should live like a stoic, you can't go up to someone who lives like a, not a stoic or, you know, especially if they live very unstoic and be like, yeah, you're doing it right. You got to be like, no, nah, bro, you maybe you, I can respect your decision or I don't want to make a fuss, but at the end of the day, I think you're doing it wrong. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So, so I guess, I, I, like, what's the difference then between like philosophy, religion, spirituality? Like, I, I feel like I, for one, yeah. maybe have conflated those terms previously and they mean different things i would think right like what's the distinction between between these i don't know uh so i would say a religion often is a kind of philosophy maybe usually it's not as rationally developed it's not like designed to be rationally developed at the very least right you have religious philosophers but usually they're taking books of religion like the bible or quran or whatever and they're using it as a basis to to do their rational thinking and then spirituality is like religion without the organized social element. That's at least how I usually hear the word used. Okay. That, does that jive with what you yeah, think? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes, it makes sense, right? So I guess philosophy is just more about our personal interpretation of this thing that we call life that we're going through, right? Pretty much. Yeah. So let's talk about some more about, I guess, how you develop this love of philosophy, right? So you said that your dad was, gave this. <laughs> obscure quote talking about nothing comes from nothing like what what did that quote do to you and that made you want to just study philosophy besides uh, well, my, feel bad about being lazy 
Yeah, basically, right? <laughs> no, my dad used to go. He was uh, studied philosophy in school, and then I think he just like had kids and had to become a programmer or something. So it didn't work out. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Those phrases, they just like they point to something more than that reprimand. Like you're saying, they're not just saying, "Hey, you're lazy." There's nothing comes from nothing, and then like, what does that mean? Does that mean like that the world has to be eternal? Like that's like one conclusion you could draw. I mean, Parmenides used it to prove that only one thing exists and nothing else exists and no change is ever happening in reality. <laughs> like That's where he went with it. So, and what I think really I enjoyed about philosophy was that you take things, I mean, this is going to sound kind of silly, but you take things that are like pretty normal and everyone agrees on, like nothing comes from nothing. Like you really want to have a debate about it? Prove to me that something came from it. You know? <laughs> uh, and then you go from there. And if you without doing anything nuts because you're just using your rational thinking you get to places that are like utterly insane like parmenides he takes this normal thing which is like yeah nothing comes from nothing there's always a, a, a thing that came before it and then his conclusion is the world is a static there's only one thing nothing ever changes and every change is an illusion and you know you're living in a lie like that is crazy but it's on you to deny him that like you he did the reasoning and he got there. So he must have done something wrong or else he's right. And you really gotta like think about it. So I think a lot of people, maybe this is just a weird thing about me and maybe you, but when I was there and I read those things, I was like, I can't just shut the book and walk away. If he's right, like everything is different. I gotta think about this and see if he's right. You yeah. know? Yeah, I remember like that first time I heard Zeno's paradox when he said yeah. about like motion, right? So if, for anybody who doesn't know what Zeno's paradox is, can you give us a, a brief primer on, on that? Sure. I mean, that's very topical. Zeno was a student of Parmenides, as you probably know. So Zeno's paradox is just the, the, the that arrow, right? Because so he says, if you shoot an arrow and you want to get to the target, first, it's got to go halfway. Sounds pretty normal. Then it's going to have to go halfway of that halfway. So a quarter of the way. Sounds pretty normal. Then it's going to go ha halfway of that and halfway. So now an eighth of the way, pretty normal. But then if you push this to this next degree, you see that there's an infinite number of steps for it to take. And the arrow has to do them in a finite amount of time because it's going to get to the end, right? You can't do infinite things in finite time. So therefore, the arrow can't have gotten there. It must all be a lie or something weird. Those Does that sound some, like what you're thinking of? Yeah, it just has some really interesting implications for a gradient descent then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, when we taught Zeno's paradox in school, basically most of the math people were like, yeah, but calculus, bro. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But I, I don't know. That's a good answer. But also calculus is not free of questions either. Just because Leibniz said infinite small things make one normal thing. That doesn't make it true. <laughs> like, anyway. Yeah, no, talk, talk to us about that. Because I mean, I think a lot of us here are familiar with, with calculus being, being data scientists. Yeah. I guess let's talk about this then. So the intersection of data science and philosophy, obviously you've got an intersection here, just taking the texts and and making a really cool app and website to to classify text. But let's go a little bit deeper. Like what is, you know, the the intersection of data science and philosophy? What are some of the important questions that we should be asking ourselves when we're doing work as data scientists? Does that make sense, that question? Kind of, yeah. I think the easiest place for philosophy to intersect any discipline is at the level of morality, right? So we've all heard of like responsible tech and things like that. And 
philosophy. You know, there's a whole branch of it, the ethical philosophy, philosophy of morality, that kind of vibe. And as a data scientist, the first, and you know, as a human being, the first question you should be asking yourself is, why am I doing this? And am I doing it for good reasons? And is it going to have good results? You know, and not good in the sense that like I got the result I wanted, like good in the sense that you should be wanting that result. You know what I mean? So I won't claim to be an expert on ethical AI and all those. That, that's a whole field that I'm just getting into. So I mean, I'm sure you probably know more about it than me, and maybe you can speak to this. There's yeah. a lot of questions in that area. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to study a lot more. Definitely, um, I think it has important implications, especially now more than ever. Right now, that these yeah. systems that we're that we're building, these intelligent systems, are pretty much everywhere. Like, we need to consider some of these ethical questions. I just, I guess, I just don't know where to start. Right? Like, do I just start picking up like Nico Matthew ethics or whatever, and then just collide that with data science? Like, how does this? Like, <laughs> I mean, you can read books if you want. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Probably you only need to like maybe watch an intro video that compares some ethical theories or something. And then, you know, you're a smart dude, just start thinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it is. And if you start thinking, ideally, maybe start writing some stuff down that you're thinking, you know, compare your ideas and maybe draw some conclusions from them and see if those conclusions make sense to you. Maybe you got to revisit your ideas, right? It's all iterative. I, to me, I'm a big think a proponent of philosophy you can just do it in your bedroom like you should read yeah. because those things really spark a lot of thoughts uh, and they'll give you context and more to learn but at the end of the day if you're not thinking for yourself on it you're not you're kind of missing the point you know what i mean yeah like i, I love reading philosophy I absolutely love reading yeah. philosophy i don't necessarily like being in philosophy class <laughs> Where, well, you know what I mean? okay. <laughs> right like 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 philosophy class they're, they're talking about all these like terms and like definitions yeah. and shit i'm just like ah it's like ruining it for me yeah that kind of killed it for me i had one really good teacher and he would just always not go to the definitions and he would force people to ask questions and talk about it. you know that was a good approach but you're right all the undergrad classes i saw and i had to teach sometimes it was just like, here's a list of definitions, write an essay about them next. Yeah. That, that to me wasn't really useful. That's part of the reason I left academia. I just like, I don't want to teach those classes, you know? I think one of the classes where that, that kind of approach makes sense maybe is like logic. Yeah. Like formal yeah. logic. Are you a big fan of, of formal logic? Like, can we use some of those yeah. lessons in data science? Like, what, what would you say are some key things that we should know from, from logic as data science? scientists well I'll, I'll say one key thing that is very useful and one key thing to like make you think okay so one key thing very useful is like formal logic you're, i mean you're already using it a ton if then statements are formalized Bayes was a logician boolean algebra also a logician you know all those things programming is in a sense just logic you know uh, applied logic if you like so Will you learn a lot from studying formal logic? To some extent, it might be nice to see what you know in another language. I don't think you'll necessarily need it in any particular sense. It's something you've probably already internalized if you're a data scientist. Yeah, yeah. The thing to like push you a little further is there are, it's not like formal logic is decided, right? There are many different formal logics and the one that we use in programming is like totally cool and legit. And that's basically like the baseline. But then there's what's called dialethism. So that's like when you believe that true and false can happen at the same time. 
you know, obviously computers can't do that, but that is a, a one form of formal logic. There's relevance logics where you're not just modeling true and false, but you involve relevance in the truth and falsity of things, right? There's fuzzy logic, all these different kinds of logic, which if you chose to explore those dimensions, many of them could be modeled by computers. Some of them would be difficult, but could be done and others might just be impossible, but they're all supposed to map how people think. So if, if you wanted to your computer to map how people think, it might be useful to look at these different formal logics as uh, models of very rigorous and mathematized, at least formalized ways of making that shown so that you have something to look at when you're using it, uh, trying to model it on your computer. Does that make sense? Yeah. I was reading this book of why. Have you read this book yet? Judea's put this, but causal um, inferences, well, not causal inferences. Oh, you know, I heard a lot about that book. I was, uh, in my heart, I'm like, no, it cannot be like that. So someone's going to have to convince me. Yeah. <laughs> but so, I believe that it, I, I got to read that book to put myself to the test. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I liked it. I'm, I'm interviewing the co-author of the book, Dana McKenzie, uh, next week. So it's just kind oh, of. Oh, yeah, I got to check it out. Yeah, it's pretty interesting there. He's talking about all these different types of logics, fuzzy logic and just the logic of knowledge and, and things like that and these causal diagrams. And it reminds me of what you're just, just saying. But yeah, man, there's just a lot of interesting stuff in, in, in philosophy. It's a big, beautiful subject. And I, mean, I don't know what it is, but I just keep getting down this, like, this weird rabbit hole of like trying to understand the nature of reality. Can we use data science and machine learning to help us understand reality? Is that, is that possible? How do, you, how, do you, how do you think we could do that? I mean, if you want my answer, no. <laughs> you, okay, it's because I'll, I'll explain why. You can understand a lot about reality, of course. But can you understand what reality is in itself or something like that? No. And the reason is because data science works with data. What is data? It's all taken from the world around us. And uh, this is, I'm just like basically parroting Kant here, but you're learning about the world around you and you're learning about features about it and you're learning, you're learning how to work and work, deal with the world. But at the end of the day, you don't know what the world is. You just know that the world has rocks and trees and the data works like this. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like you can see someone's face and you can see their, what they're saying, but at the end of the day, you don't know what's in their head. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. You could build a really smart model that could predict all your behavior based on your face and your words. But at the end of the day, it still doesn't know what's in your head. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I don't mean that to be like dismissive of data. Obviously I went into data from philosophy Yeah. and yeah. I don't really think philosophy can tell you what the world is either. <laughs> but That's another yeah. thing. But data is a very useful tool for living in the world. I wouldn't say that it's got the final answer like that. Yeah, because I mean, like, you know, I'm a mentor at, at Data Science Stream. I've got a lot of up-and-coming data scientists as part of that program. Uh, and it's just interesting when these people who are new to data science are doing some type of, let's just say, a binary classification, right? Mm. And the accuracy in their binary classification just isn't good. And they're just like, why isn't it like, why isn't it good? And I'm just like, you're just assuming that because you have data and because you can use an algorithm that you will get a answer that is good. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, I mean, philosophically, does that make sense? Like just because you have good data and you're using an algorithm, does it mean you're going to get a result? No, not necessarily. Right. Cause it could uh -huh. just model the relationship. Yeah. And you got to think, where do the algorithms come from? It's not like the algorithms were handed down by God and God said, use these to classify. 
people invented the classifier and then they tested it and saw that it worked. So it's all internal to the human way of thinking and that kind of vibe, right? Yeah. If we didn't independently decide the classifier worked, we wouldn't use it and then see if it worked. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, because it's not like probability just exists out there, right? It's not like it's not it's not like there's an actual, I don't know, Poisson distribution or gamma distribution just out there, right? Like these things don't just exist. We're just kind of using these to describe something that we've we've seen, right? I mean. That's a philosophical question, and Plato would disagree with you. But I agree with really? you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, talk to me yeah. about that. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think math and data and all these things are tools that we use to get around in the world, and we have been building, thanks to technology, better and better and better tools. You mm-hmm. know, like I was just saying earlier, though, at the end of the day, they're tools, and it's up to us to decide what to use them for. Yeah. And so, that to me is an interesting question. And obviously building better tools is good. That's what makes humanity, you know, the dominant species in the planet and maybe the world one day. I don't know. Uh, and yeah. Yeah. Plato has his uh, idealized forms and he just thinks yeah. that there, there is a plane of existence where the gamma distribution is dancing around. And, and yeah, he's got like every gamma distribution up there. So yeah. he's got a very busy world up there, you know? Yeah. But yeah, it's so definitely an important point. It's just, they're just tools, right? I, I, I like I wouldn't take any, I wouldn't take statistics as true. I'm a statistician. Like there's nothing true about statistics. And in, in my opinion, it's just, it's just guesswork. Yeah. And it's like verified by gut feelings even sometimes. You know? yeah. and, well, I, I don't know. That's probably doing a discredit. It's verified by the data. Yeah. Yeah. It still, to me, just seems like it's uh, it's fake stuff. I know, I'm going <laughs> to get roasted for this. Like, yes, everything we're doing as data scientists, it, it's fake. None of it's real. It's not fake, man. <laughs> Just because you're using it and it's not like you don't believe it exists up in Plato's heaven doesn't make it fake. You know? Yeah. It's yeah, still no. They're still useful tools, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Please don't send me hate mail for <laughs> people listening. No, actually, uh, you're not going to get classified as a Platonist for this one, bro. I wonder what I would get classified as. That's that's interesting. So it, let's say I wanted to use your text classification tool on myself. Like, would it just be a matter of me uploading my journal into here? And, yeah, you could do that. Yeah, I was going to suggest a journal. That would be pretty good. The more text you have, the better, obviously. You could just put your Twitter in if you think it's representative of who you are. But of course, like Twitter and journal, all those things are not like you in the purest form, like they're all like you talking to yourself, you talking to the world. So, yeah. but I don't know if there is any you in the purest form. So the journal is a good idea. So let's yeah. go with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I do with my LinkedIn. It's like, I'll just post stuff on LinkedIn, but then I go back and I look at my post to remind myself that, Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm the guy that said that thing. So I should <laughs> live. I should live by that. I'm doing this thing on LinkedIn now where I'm just trying to post aphorisms. I'm trying to get really yeah. good at just distilling my, my thoughts down into just as few well, you writing your own? Possible. I mean, like I just practice writing them and I just post them on on LinkedIn. That's dope, dude. And in my journal as well. I just, I just, I just wanted, I want to be able to just write good aphorisms. That's my, that's my thing. I just want to uh, distill down my thoughts to as few words as possible. That's all I want. Yeah, and then I mean, it be it's almost like more forceful because it's so direct and I don't know pithy or whatever. You know, like you read a whole book and the guy says, "Do the right thing." Could have just said do the right thing and it would probably have more impact you yeah. know <laughs> yeah i mean nietzsche i think said that uh, every good philosophy should just be written in aphorisms or something yeah that's i guess that's probably why i'm studying a whole bunch of them just because i want to understand what makes a good aphorism yeah. but 
Oh, just something I just I just want like just like people talk about peace of mind, right? I just want peace from mind. I just want just want still quietness in my head. That's like the, the thing that I'm striving for, right? So you and me both, man. That's yeah. a hard goal. It's hard, man. It's it's really hard to to not to not think so much. Just slow it down. Do you have any tips for us on on how we could do that? I mean, I guess meditate. That's yeah. I remember this is like a, a hobby story, but I like I like I, I I like meditating. I don't do it as much as I should, but I don't know if this story will really be any too. But one day I, I was talking to my aunt, and she meditates a lot. I was telling her, oh yeah, I went to this like retreat or whatever, and then she just said like, yeah, meditation is like it really is the answer. And I was like, I don't know, I don't know. That's just like a silly phrase that hit me right in the moment, you know. And I was like, yeah, it kind of just is. All those things that like all the problems of the world, you probably could solve if you just like meditated harder. And obviously that's like crazy simplified. And if you're starving in the street, meditating might not be your first choice. But it kind of like at the end of the day for the human condition, I do think that that's the answer. And maybe this is, you yeah. know, just philosophy, me going too far with everything. But to answer your question, how can we calm it down? You should meditate now. Yeah, yeah, I do meditate in the in the morning, a um, few few minutes in the morning. But I I like I really enjoy just writing my thoughts out, yeah. just like doing a brain dump and just getting my thoughts out, and yeah. it's it's really helped just with with clarity and and thinking clearly. I guess. Yeah, Wittgenstein said that uh, writing is thinking. I mean, thinking is just jumbled unless you're writing, in a sense. And uh, yeah, I used to, when I was uh, in grad school, I would write like a page of just like free writing every day, just to kind of get the juices flowing and like get in the habit of just thinking out loud like that, you know, and uh, it really helps. Yeah. So, so yeah, let's go ahead and let's, let's start to, to wind it down here, man. So let's, let's, let's jump into the last formal question before we go into a uh, fun <laughs> random round, my favorite part of here. So right. it's 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? I'm probably just better if I'm not remembered. Like, I'm fine, guy. But, like, people should just be living in the now and not remembering Kurash from 100 years old. You know? <laughs> so I hope that's, I hope that's the, the future that people have. They have people living, living their lives, not even, not even thinking about, thinking about yeah, I mean, I, I'm contributing what I can to society. And if my name lives on, that's great. If not, I did my part. You know, that, that's where I, I'm at with it. I like that, man. I like that. Yeah, I feel like uh, I've been, I'm just pushing content out, just flooding it, trying to just flood the internet with my, with my content, just in hopes that maybe in 100 years, somebody will be like, hey, this guy was all right. Interesting kind of guy. That's, that's, that's I doubt I'm that you're doing it from a selfish legacy perspective. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, it's definitely not that. out there helping people, man. Everyone I know yeah. who goes to your office hours is like, this was the dopest thing, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. But it's out there to be uh, to to be consumed, hopefully in in the future, by people who need that help. As yeah, well. exactly. It's a lot of fun, man. It it is. Yeah, I mean, I hope this project helps people in a hundred years. Yeah. yeah, absolutely love that, man. So let's go ahead and jump into the real quick random round here. First question is: When do you think the first video to hit one trillion views on YouTube will happen, and what will it be about? Oh man, you sent me these beforehand. And I was like, I thought I was, I was have to do the research and find out where we're at right now. So right now we're at like 9 billion and it's baby shark. Baby shark at 9 billion. Oh man. Yeah. Probably a baby movie. That's smart. That's smart. Cause those babies will watch that stuff just over and over. 
when will it happen? Can I say never? YouTube will die before we get there. Can I say that? Yeah. All right. All right. Fair enough. One trillion is a big ask. If we're only at nine billion, we'd make like 20 years. And by then we'll be floating around the interweb with our brains plugged in and there'll be no YouTube. So whatever. We'll be in, we'll be in the matrix. Yeah, exactly. There's no YouTube in the matrix, bro. You live in YouTube. Yeah, man, that's pretty deep. <laughs> <laughs> so in your opinion, what do most people think within the first few seconds of meeting you for the first time? Probably that I have a weird name or that I'm tall. <laughs> that you're dull or tall? What did you say? A tall. Tall. How tall are you? I'm not that tall. Six three. Yeah, man. That's pretty tall to me. So what are you currently reading? Uh, right now? I mean, I think I just read this uh, book series. It was called The Book of the New Sun. It's mm-hmm. a pretty cool like sci-fi series. It's uh like written about this guy in the dark far future where everything's medieval because they like mined all their resources and like aliens come in and out, but they're not like a big deal. And uh, it's just written in an interesting way. A lot of like cool reflections and stuff about time and things like that. I got to check that out. What was it called again? It's the book of the new sun by Gene Wolfe. There's an, a new sun, like a N E W S O N a new sun. A book of the new sun. So okay, it's like, the, the idea is that in this distant future, the sun is like a red giant. It's slowly dying. And uh-huh. everyone's thinking, oh, one day the new sun will come and revitalize Earth. You know? Interesting. Uh, what song do you currently have on repeat? This song is called, oh, shoot. It's called Photo ID by Remy Wolf. All right. I got to check that one out. <laughs> so it's just Wolf. a popper. You know? And I tend to just like listen to the same song endlessly. Yeah, I mean that that happens to me to me as well. I've been uh, there's this dude that that I really enjoy, Akira the Don. I think you might might enjoy him as well. He does. Uh, he he takes essentially just like people's talks and lectures and puts beats to them and just makes them freaking phenomenal. He's done stuff with like, I mean, he's done stuff with Naval Ravikant, Joe Rogan, Alan Watts, Terrence McKenna, Jordan Peterson. He's then all. Who's this guy? This is a pretty cool idea. Yeah, Akira the Dawn. Akira the the Dawn, like the Rise of the Sun, or Dawn like a D O N D O N. Yeah, he took Marcus Aurelius Meditations Book One and turned it into a album. Okay, dude. Yeah, you sold me. I'll check yeah. it out. Check it out. Yeah, the Meditations Volume One, Akira the Dawn. It's amazing. It's it's dope. Yeah. All right, so let's pull up the random question generator. First question I got here is pet peeves. Rudeness is that a thing? I guess it's not pet. Yeah, yeah, rudeness is pain in the ass. People should not be rude. Who are some of your heroes? I guess it's cheesy. You have Content Hegel. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like I've been trying to get into German philosophy a little bit, and like just watching. So, so the way I kind of get into stuff is I'll watch like YouTube videos, mm-hmm. maybe somebody who's done like an explainer video on it, just to get the high level picture. And then if I find it interesting, then I'll dig deeper. And I've been watching some explainer videos on some German philosophy. I was watching some stuff with, I was learning about Schopenhauer. Yeah. Um, that guy's bleak. And then there's uh, Nietzsche, or just Nietzsche, whatever. It's, I couldn't vibe with it, man. I don't know what it is. I like the ancient stuff far better. I don't know what it yeah. is. Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, like those guys were about 50 years after Hegel. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Schopenhauer is basically Kant, but sad. And then Nietzsche is like Schopenhauer, but angry, you know? Like, <laughs> Yeah. So when people come to you for help, what do they usually want help with? 
I guess recently the one person who comes to me for help most often is a six-year-old or a seven-year-old now, and uh, she wants help with spelling. So <laughs> is that your kid? That's <laughs> nice. uh, daughter, yeah. <laughs> so nobody comes to you with help uh, for existential crises or anything like that. Um, not really, man, because I'm pretty bad at helping. Them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just like quote some stuff to them. They're like, "Not oh, cool, man." I guess I'll <laughs> think about that. If you lost all of your possessions but one. What would you want it to be? Uh, probably cell phone. Right. How about my own person? Locke said you own yourself. So if I lost that, that would be really bad. There you go. Uh, what fictional place would you most like to go to? I'd like to go to the planet that Dune is set on. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, that, yeah. that book in the movie? Like, probably a, a sad place to live, but I love that book and I'd like to check it out. All right. I remember uh, the one character was in Muad'Dib. Mm-hmm. Um, so you like Akira the Dawn, Dune Wave. He took uh, Dune and made Dune into an album. Definitely Get check. out, dude. Yeah, check that out as well. Okay. All right. I guess this Akira guy is going to be on the list soon. So where can people connect with you and how can they find you online? LinkedIn is uh, Kurash Elizadeh. Twitter, uh, I have a personal one. Uh, you can find it on the link for the Philosophy Data Project, though. If you just search Philosophy Data, I think it's philosophy underscore data on Twitter. The philosophy data project is just philosophydata.com. If you want to support it, there's a Patreon. You can just go to patreon.com slash philosophy data. There's probably more. I mean, not every day. Yeah. Well, I'll include links to all of those right there in the show notes. Well, Karash, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show, man. I appreciate having you here. It's an honor. I am I'm very pleased to have been on. Thank you.